the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Oh, that's wonderful. Is this Tracy? Um, this is Tracy. I'm running about two minutes late. I'm so sorry. Well, Tracy, uh, we're running about three minutes late, so we're perfect. And, <laughs> Thank uh, you so n- much. Nice to hook up with you. I'm Pat Williams in Orlando, Tracy. Uh, Hi, Pat. We are, and where are you? Where have I found you? I'm in Dallas. I'm just getting out of traffic, about to walk into my office. Good. Well, I think we're connecting yeah. well, and... Uh, uh, well, I can hear you just fine. Uh, we've got a 10-minute segment, and then we follow that with a 15-minute segment. <clears throat> I'm going okay. to work off the table of contents, Tracy, of your book. There are 13 chapters. Uh, we'll see how many we can cover. I'll set you up. Uh, you explain that particular chapter, and then we'll move on to the next one. Um, okay. Um, you know what? Actually... They were supposed to send you over my questions for the book. Did they do that? Um, well, I've got um, Tracy. <coughs> yes, <coughs> yes, I've got them. Would you okay. pref- would you, Would you prefer that? Um, if you don't mind, the reason is I don't have a copy of my book in front of me. Okay. And I've written multiple books this year, and I don't have it memorized uh, chapter by chapter. Okay. So I'm sorry about that. All right. Well, we'll just follow the uh, – there are 15 questions here. So, uh, okay. yeah, I have that sheet. So, all right. Glad I asked. Here. <laughs> I'm sorry about that. I'm usually more flexible. Um, but I, you just caught me without a copy of it in my hand. No problem. Here we go. Welcome, folks, uh, to the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour right here on the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. Alan Dempsey is our engineer. He gets us on the air every time. And Andrew Herdlisk is our producer. And Tracy Mitchell is our first guest from Dallas. Her book, Becoming Brave. How to think big, dream wildly, and live fear-free. I'll tell you what, Tracy, that sounds good to me. How about it, huh? Yes, I absolutely love Becoming Brave because it definitely pushes us out of our comfort zone. When uh, did this idea hit you, and how did the writing take place? Oh, it took uh, place about a a little over a year and a half ago, and my publisher had asked me to write on this particular topic, and I had no idea at the time how I was going to be forced to live out this topic as I was writing. I remember sitting on the back porch um, a week after I had signed the contract for this book, only to see that my newly born granddaughter was, um, I was watching her upstairs do a baby monitor and my husband had been in a severe accident. We weren't sure if he was going to lose his leg. And I was watching him in the other baby monitor. And so when you talk about brave, I really had to take a strong look and reevaluate, was I living out the brave, authentic, courageous life that I, that I suppose? 
Tracy, I want you to expand on this statement. A victorious life is not stumbled upon. It is cultivated. So how do we cultivate it? You know what? Being brave and courageous is a, is a day-by-day, baby-step-by-baby-step action. I mean, sometimes we just have to rediscover our voice and our dreams. Um, it may be by daring enough to move forward. You know, in the one chapter of our lives, even when our present chapter looks like failure, and that's so hard. Or maybe it's finding strength to confront, you know, uncomfortable situations or difficult people, how to release toxic emotions that may just cloud our thinking. But it's a day-by-day, step-by-step journey to living an authentic life. Tracy Mitchell is our guest. Tracy, you suggest that our crises in life often reveal who we are. And my question is, is that always good? (laughs) It can be. I believe crisis is really the ultimate catalyst for change. Uh, Because no matter how brave we want to imagine we are, life will eventually just call a bluff. And that may come in the way of an MRI uh, swirling around our head, looking the homeless in the eyes, are becoming foster parents to children that maybe we've never even met. And for every opportunity to become brave, there will be a dozen or more voices that try to cripple our confidences, confidence, and that voice, those voices don't just whisper. I mean, they actually scream defeat, distraction, and disappointment in our lives. But we have to literally rise up off the couch of what is comfortable and boldly pursue that courageous life. Now, the next thing, uh, Tracy, I want to get into, most of us, whether men or women, live our lives battling insecurity in some form. Uh, Can you talk about your insecurities and how have you worked to overcome them? Oh, yes. I I had a million. (laughs) Almost all of my insecurities have been rooted in rejection. Mm. And my first book, Downside Up, deals with this topic in great detail. As a matter of fact, it took me decades to see that rejection was actually designed to work for me rather than against me. And many of us have treated rejection like an enemy instead of responding to it like a personal conductor through life. And it was about three decades into my personal journey that I discovered that if I give rejection permission, it will do for me what I can't do for myself. It will stop me from pursuing doors that are closed or wrong relationships, and it will actually become my best friend and personal conductor through life. So we have to have that mental switch where we treat rejection um, as an ally rather than an enemy. Well, I think it's important to move on to this topic, and that is, how does becoming brave land us somewhere between indecision and determination? (laughs) Yeah, often the dread of failure keeps us stuck in the rut of mundane living uh, because we settle for small, safe dreams, the ones that we can easily attain, uh, rather than really reaching for dreams that require divine intervention. And the greatest story of our lives will begin with a four-letter word, and that four-letter word is R-I-S-K. And believe me, it takes courage to push aside fears and move forward with our instincts. Um, it requires a great deal of faith to set us free from things that we would rather control than release. So um, rising up from that comfortable place uh, that we've been lounging means that we have to stop resting on our feelings 
and actually begin to stand on what God is saying. Because it takes courage, if we're really all honest, to make something good out of a total mess. Tracy Mitchell is in Dallas. She's written an important book entitled Becoming Brave. Uh, Tracy, why do so many of us allow culture to define our role? And, and how can we change this? Right. Well, I'll just take it from the angle of women within our culture, which we see a, a lot of press right now, a lot of debate on, on gender roles in, in our culture. And I remember standing before a group of women in a little remote village um, out in Colorado. And I opened our retreat with a series of probing questions and I instructed the women to break into small groups, sit comfortably on the floor with everyone in place. I asked them three questions. And for the first question, I asked them to describe life's most disappointing moment. And immediately the women began to unload private and painful issues. And then I asked them a similar, another similar question. And the room was a buzz as they began to talk it up. And then all of a sudden for the third question, I asked them to tell of a time where they had failed to be courageous. And all of a sudden, the room began to be quiet, and I could hear the humming of the outdated appliance, the clicking of the clock in the back of the room. And when I asked them to define their courage, they absolutely had nothing to say. And I began to question why, as women, are we not comfortable in our culture with talking about becoming brave? Because, you know, you and I know, if you sit men around a campfire and you ask them to talk about times they've been brave or they've been courageous, all of a sudden the stories get bigger and they get longer and that Superman bravado comes out, but that's not the case with women. And so my question is why are women not comfortable talking about becoming brave and how do we change that? More importantly, how do we begin to model and articulate brave actions to the next generation of women? Tracy Mitchell is with us. Tracy, what do you mean by, Every generation is defined by the questions they ask or refuse to ask. Uh, what's that mean? You know, I love researching history, um, and especially in respect to how individuals change um, their culture and generation, just sometimes by simply asking the right question. And so as I was studying um, in the Bible the other day, I was reading in Numbers 27, that five women changed history because they were daring enough to simply ask for land allocation. They simply asked for their inheritance. And when I researched that particular story, and it's so intriguing, because women in their, in their culture and their generation were not allowed to be land owners. And so they had no father, they had no brothers, society was against them owning land. But they came and they asked the tribal council. They said it wouldn't be permissible for us to inherit our father's land. And without one question, all of history, all of their culture, all of society shifted because five destitute women were willing to ask a single question. And I thought, what questions in our generation are we not willing to ask? What inheritance may be available for us? Have we thought voraciously for our inheritance? Have we seized every opportunity and have we been as committed to opening doors for others as we would like for them to open for ourselves? And I think just really generationally that we have 
could be, and I could give a hundred illustrations, I know we don't have five, but when people rise to the occasion and they shift culture by being brave enough to ask a single question. My guest is Tracy Mitchell, author of the book, Becoming Brave. We've got another segment with Tracy. I want you to stay with us right here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. And remember, this is the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. Author Tracy Mitchell is with us from Dallas. We're talking about her book, Becoming Brave. Tracy, why do you say that shame will never move us forward in life? Now, what does it do? You know, um, traveling to 13 countries and seeing men and women of every uh, socioeconomic background, every walk of life, the one commonality that I've noticed is that shame is the secret that silences our potential. You know, not long ago, I received a text from a woman, a woman who was convinced that she was going to have to give up teaching for a particular group because of something that she did 20 years ago. And it took hours of convincing to strip away the layers of built-up shame. And then there was even much more work to do in packing up her self-confidence. And then I received a series of uh, frantic text messages from a woman I'd known from over a decade and as I scanned her text, I experienced an unwelcome deja vu because I could almost quote her line for line. Shame had repackaged itself and had dropped by for a visit. And I wanted to throw the phone and not at her, but by the enemy of her mind who had blinded her from what happy and healthy looked like. And we're living in a time where we don't have the luxury of wrapping ourselves in the sheets of shame. We are too strong to be led around by shame. And again, in this season, this is the most important thing that we have to understand is that we must shatter shame before it shatters our destiny. If we don't shatter this vice grip of shame that's been locked on our hearts and locked in our minds, we will never, ever be able to move forward. Now I want you to talk about this topic. Uh, The Me Too was a wake-up call for men and women, and really... uh, What do you see, Tracy, as the benefits and the liabilities to the movement? Sure. Uh, Me Too really became a a catchphrase, and people became familiar with the catchphrase, but I'm not sure if they really understand the movement. And the Me Too movement uh, was designed to combat sexual harassment and abuse, Um, and it encouraged victims to share their stories in order to give people a sense of the magnitude of the problem really in society that still exists. And I feel the movement had uh, had brought victims out of the corner of shame, and it's allowed them to take back their courage. And so the benefits of the Me Too movement is it has inspired countless women and men to share their experiences. And by bringing their stories to the surface, they help move our nation in the direction of justice through storytelling. And I can't reiterate that enough, that that sometimes justice comes in the odd form of being packaged simply as storytelling. Um, And if sexual abuse is a part of your story, you know, to those listening today, I pray that God will give you the strength to share your journey in helping others literally fight for their freedom. Tracy, the next topic I want you to get into is this fact you write that betrayal is the number one tactic the enemy uses to steal our courage. 
Uh, explain how this works. Now, the question is not, you know, whether we will have a side swipe or two at the trail. Uh, the question is, what are we going to do with those encounters? And will those encounters literally cheat us out of our purpose? Will wounds from someone you consider to stay person keep you from trusting someone new? How far down the river will the tide of this loyalty drag us? Will it distance us from our dream? Will it capsize them together? And those are legitimate logistic questions that when betrayal strikes, do we have a game plan in place of how we're going to handle it once it it happens? And I know one thing for sure, that betrayal is the number one tactic the enemy uses to steal our courage. And in Becoming Brave, we cover this in great detail. Because many have said that betrayal is not passive. It is absolutely personal. Because through betrayal, the enemy attempts to shift our focus from what God desires to give us to what others have taken from us. And if he can ever skew our focus, then he can derail our our objectivity. Because most of us are too intimidated uh, to at least to try to reach for our destinies. And truthfully, we nearly collapse when others try to steal that from us. And so it's very important that we have a game plan, again, ready for when the trail strikes next. And we teach you how to do that in Becoming Great. Now I want you to explain to us uh, what specific ways has the fear of falling behind causes us or you to lose sight of your own dreams at times? Is is that a logical question? Yes, logical. Um, I wouldn't describe myself as slightly competitive. That wouldn't be true. I'm extremely competitive. <laughs> Not in a way that's unhealthy or interferes with my relationships, but the kind of competition that makes me almost come unhinged when I feel I'm losing ground or coming up short. Um, and by this point in life, I've officially lost count of how many times the fear of falling behind has caused me to lose sight of my dreams. And I think I'm not the only one who experiences that sort of fear. Um, there's not a lot of fear in life, but the fear of falling behind or coming up short is huge. And I've learned that it's not always the unambitious that end up underachieving. That sometimes it's the person who fights hardest and loses ground because our eyes drift out of our lane, because our competition takes us to places that are totally unhealthy for our journey. Tracy Mitchell is with us. Tracy, your book strongly encourages women to work together in some fashion, in in strength. Uh, I want you to expand on that. Yeah, a few days, uh, years, decades ago, our gender fought um, with men over a handful of jobs that were made available for women. And now women have gone from fighting for a slice of the pie now to fighting each other, women against women, over who will own the bakery, um, so to speak. And the greatest leap we as women have um, is there's now more uh, CEOs that are female in the world than ever before. And it's hard for women to make the journey to get together. And again, I address this in detail. Um, and I have to imagine what would it be like if we decided as women to defend and protect each other rather than exposing each other's vulnerabilities and fighting each other for, for potential. You know, when I was seven years old, I remember uh, going to the beach with my friend Val, who lived down the street. 
And we had a perfect day. Um, and in that afternoon, we began to make tiny little sand castles on the beach. And everything was just perfect. And so her father walked by and she asked him to evaluate which sand castle was better, hers or mine. And being the good father that he was, he gave his compliments on both. And I could tell by the look and Belle's eyes that wasn't the answer she wanted. And with one fell swoop, she leveled both castles that we had been building. Mm. And at seven years old, I understood that her search for validation, her search for affirmation, that she was willing to destroy what we had both built because that competitive nature within her longed for exclusive validation. And you know what? Seven-year-old girls aren't the only ones. I've seen 30- and 40-year-old women willing to destroy what they were building because they needed singular exclusive validation. And I thought, what instead of leveling the two castles, if we had bridged them together and what we were building individually was now was now double because we were willing to partner together in our building. Tracy Mitchell is with us. Tracy, now... Uh, why do you say that every dream is threatened by a season of frustration? Yeah, frustration is not an easy word to say. I hate, I even hate the way that it tumbles off my lips. It makes it feel so uninviting. You know, and after we have watched um, things that we've had high expectations for suddenly fall apart, we feel frustrated. And the emotional toll of not getting what we want can make us weary in ways that we've never imagined. Um, every dream in our life will be threatened by a season of frustration. And where we allow that frustration to take us will determine really what becomes of our dreams. If we stay stuck in the mire of disappointment, we will lose our enthusiasm to live out our passion. We may even lose um, and start living out someone else's dream. I've seen men and women both um, start living their dream that somehow skew their dream with someone else's end up down a path and a road that they never ever intended on going and failing simply because they got their eyes on someone else's dream. And the number one way to do that is to fall into a pit of frustration concerning your dream and then buy into the dream of someone else. Tracy, let's go to this topic. You tell us that nothing new will happen until we grow weary of our present situation. And I guess the question is, aren't most of us more comfortable with the status quo of life? What do you think? Yeah, in my study of of what makes us do brave things, I've come to the conclusion that not everyone who does something brave is actually brave. I know that sounds counterintuitive, but it's true. Let me unpack that thought. Sometimes situations arise where we're forced to act in a brave way, but once that crisis is over, we revert back to casual living and just laid-back, mundane thinking. And being brave is not something that we do in situational experiences. It's not something we choose to do occasionally or as a result of running for something we fear. But brave-hearted living is a daily decision to move forward and to daily move forward in the direction of our dreams. And um, it's the willingness to confront things that are uncomfortable. It's refusing to stay stuck in situations where we feel shameful. Um, It's courage to rise up when we'd rather stay sitting down. And there's many days that we all feel that way. It's 
so much more comfortable to be complacent than it is to actually rise up and deal with ways that we've been wounded. Um, and we are we were created to live our mark on the earth, to make fresh footprints so that others can walk in the path that we've cleared. And the only way for them to do that is when we are willing to become brave, carve out and make the path clear so that others who are coming behind us um, can find that the journey is somewhat easy. Tracy, talk to us about the fact that uh, God biologically wired women as networkers and communicators. Uh, what, what does that mean to you? Yeah, to me, I've been dealing with women's culture for almost 25 years, again, in every country, different languages. And what I have found at the core is that women really don't know who they were created to be. And so last year, I took a journey back to find out and discover how God really wired us. And the original Hebrew word, when God labeled woman, he used the Hebrew word, it's a four-letter word, ezer, E-Z-E-R, which literally the translation of that word is brave warrior and savior. And I found out that, that when God named us that, the only time he ever used that word again is when he called himself that 14 times. And so that's proof that we were not wired weak, we were born brave. And how society looks at and often labels our sisterhood has more impact on our image than what we have ever imagined. And the world really is after what makes us most like God. Uh, by divine design, again, we were wired to be redeemers and warriors. And in that one tiny word, God spelled out our destiny. He said, you are to be brave, to be strong, to be a rescuer, and to be a female savior. And any lesser labeling of that word, honestly, is a lie. And marketing, um, films invest billions in infomercials, billboards, hyperlink ads, pornography, you know, weight loss scams, the list goes on all in a manner of propaganda to manipulate God's original design for women. And it is time that we stop looking at what culture is saying about and to women and start defining our lives by how God originally created us. In closing, Tracy, uh, we've all had storms in our life that makes us feel uncomfortable and out of control. Uh, Tell us how to embrace the storms of life. Um, and I've been through many, <laughs> but not long ago I went sailing and as the boat began to pitch and turn, I asked the captain of, of, of the vessel, I said, how, how in the world is we're going to make it out of this storm? And yelling above the wind, you know, he said something that still lingers with me. He said, Tracy, don't try to get away from something you can't outrun. And shaking my head, I yelled back, I said, but I came here to learn to sail. And he dropped the line, he placed his hands on his hips, and he said, Tracy, you won't learn to sail only when the sea is calm. He said, but you have to take advantage of the storm that's coming and learn how to lean into the wind. And learning how to lean into stormy situations was not an achievement I mastered in a single session, but like every great lesson in life, it took some practice and some time before I could steady my legs in any stormy situation. And life is the same way. There are storms that we can outrun, storms and situations that we actually have to go through, learning how to steady our mind, to maintain focus, to gather our emotions instead of letting them unravel, takes practice, takes diligence, and takes prayer. Tracy Mitchell, our guest, Becoming Brave, the name of her book. 
We need to take a break, and then we'll be back on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. This is the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. Tracy, wonderful. Thank you. Good job. We, Thank you. I'm sorry if I was a little off the mark. I was up at Urgent Care until 1 a.m. last night, so I was sick Tracy, this morning. So thank Tracy, you for your patience. You were terrific. You were terrific. Thank you. Terrific. And con- Thank you so con- much. Congrats on your book. Good job. All right. Bless you. Thank you. Bye, Tracy. Bye-bye. That was Tracy Mitchell in that first segment talking about her book, uh, Becoming Brave. Uh, Tim Ryder is with us. Uh from his home in Southern California. The book is called God, a Motorcycle in the Open Road. Tim, welcome. How are you? Thank you, Pat. It's good to be with you, and I'm doing fine, much better than I deserve. Uh, what's that title mean, God, a Motorcycle in the Open Road? Explain that. You know, it's funny. I originally called it Easy Riding, the working title of it, as a, an allusion to the old film, Easy Rider, that got me into motorcycling. It, about six months before that, I had a neighbor almost forced me to take a ride in this kid's little Trail 90. and just shut him up. I got on it. And I'd never dreamed of riding a bike. Then it kind of caught me a little bit. I, it surprised me, the, the wind in my face and my hair back when I had hair. and But that was okay. It was just a passing interest. And then six months later, during finals week, my senior year in college, we decided we'd had enough of studying one of the guys said, let's go see Easy Rider. We went to see it, and I was just totally captivated, not by the sex and drugs. Uh, I wasn't a follower, but I was searching for God at that point. But it was the freedom of the open road. And so I thought, well, I'll buy a motorcycle. My roommate and I were planning to go to Canada, a little falcon I had. And Mark ran out of money, and my bike, got, my car got in an accident. So I thought, well, I'll buy a bike, and I'll take it to Canada. And, Pat, that trip absolutely changed my life, the entire trajectory of it. There's something about the freedom of the open road, of just being out in the middle of God's creation, that for some people, and not all, and I get that, but for some, it just it fills the spot in letting them experience God's creation, see the glory of it. And it was a, a life-changing thing. I've now wrote, written almost 250,000 miles. I'm riding up to Alaska in about two weeks. So it's been a key part of my life uh you do a chapter called two-wheeled unity why can't we all just get along what what does that mean what do you write there okay we were up in up around sturgis south dakota through the black hills and i was going through a curve and i was going pretty fast the bikes tempt me to do that and it's one of my many temptations i face but i, I had the lean just right and it's a great balance on the cur- the cant of the road and the curve and the speed of the bike. And it's a pretty delicate balance sometimes. And just then another motorcyclist came around the corner with his hand out in the motorcycle wave. And I had to decide, do I wave or do I risk disrupting the balance of the bike? And it was a pretty keen balance. And it took about a tenth of a second, and I waved. The reason that we do as bikers is that there's a, a quality that connects us despite the type of bike we ride. It might be a Harley or a Honda, uh, KTM. It might be a cruiser. It might be a touring bike. But there's a, a unity of people on two wheels that it typically transcends the model. 
And I kind of, it struck me as I pondered it later that day, why can't we as Christians realize the unity that we have in, in Christ is far greater than things that divide us? I think that we can learn some things from people, many of which that aren't Christian, some that are, but the bikers can teach us a lesson that there's some things that connect us that transcend whatever might push us apart. As followers of Christ, we need to be doing a little better job. I was convicted by a small book years ago, the cost, no, not the cost, the mark of the disciple, I think it was, where it talked about that verse that Jesus said, people will know you're my disciples by the love you have for each other. And if we don't have an observable love, people will have the right to say, I don't think you're a follower. I don't think you're a Christian if we don't have that love. So hence the, the two-handed way that we Christians need to incorporate a little bit better. Tim, <clears throat> Tim explain fearing men, fearing God, dealing with both. Uh, what's going on here? Okay, I was on a motorcycle trip around the country in 1974, right in the middle of the Watergate crisis. I'd gotten a, a private tour of the Rhode Island State Capitol of the charter from the King of England signed by him, and we're in the back room looking at the charter, and just then the teletype started chattering, and it said that Nixon had scheduled an address for that night for the nation, called Ford back to Washington, D.C., and the word was he would resign. So I thought, well, I've got to see that. I was a poor Christian school teacher, so I'm trying to save a nickel, thought I could either go to a motel room or go to a bar, so I chose the latter. I walk into the, this place called the Grotto in Groton, Connecticut that evening. It was this long, low building. As you walked in, there's this, you go to the right or the left, there's this long hall with a wall dividing it from the main part of the bar. So I, being right hand, I just turned right, went to the end of the hall, took around, look around. Redneck bar, the kind that a long haired hippie biker probably shouldn't spend too much time in. So I turned back around, and just as I turned around the wall, at the other end, another guy turned around the wall. And I was already a little bit leery, but I thought, that's okay. So I take a step to the side to get out of his way, and he takes a step to the side to get back in front of me. And you don't want to catch a guy's eye at a time like that. It's a direct challenge, so I'm kind of looking down to keep an eye on him. And I take a step to my right to get away, and he goes to his left. And I'm thinking, Tim, you are going to get pounded right here. And so I think I better make peace. So I raise my hands and say, hey, I didn't mean anything by it. And this guy, without saying a word, raised his hands. That was not another guy. That was a mirror. And I've been scaring myself half to death. And sometimes we can fear people and other things. And for that, there was no, sor- no source of it at all. It wasn't a genuine fear. I was just looking at the situation of value, and I totally blew it. But I think sometimes we need to realize, and riding a motorcycle gives us a little better sense of it sometimes, we can see on a bike the tremendous majesty of the created world. We were up in, in Banff, Canada last year, and there was a, a mountain ridge that went up at like a 45-degree angle and bent. And you could see the strata that moved at that 45-degree angle. And it just it's astounded me the power of God that God put it in the world where he can take this granite rock, push it up, bend it, and he doesn't break it. I think sometimes we miss the fear of God. Uh, I was at a, a conference one time. Back in the day, there was the guy that wrote a book. Oh, what was it? Uh, my mind is going blank. 
Uh, but anyway, so I'm at the conference, and he said, there are two truths to life. Get those, you'll do okay. One, God is real. Two, you're not him. I think we need to, to craft in our lives a sense of what the Bible calls the fear of God, and actually there's more of that in the New Testament than the Old. And it's a, a realization that God is a, a transcendent being. He's far beyond us. And we need a great sense of humility. If if my image caused fear in my life in Groton, Connecticut, then I need to make sure that I've always got a healthy reverence and awe for God. Now, <clears throat> now I want you to move to this topic, Tim. Risky business, you call it. The cost of hospitality. You know, one of the, the things that struck me on that big 74 trip I was kind of in search of America, of, you know, we were in the middle of Watergate, and I came across a lot of very, very hospitable people who were kind, and probably the best example. Uh, pulled into upper Massachusetts on the bike. It was kind of a misty day, late afternoon. Now, I was cold. I wanted a cup of coffee, so I, I parked the bike outside, and there's a, a little minivan right ahead of me with a husband, wife, and their five-year-old kid. And the guy saw me, and I had my gear packed on the tight on the bike. And back then, you didn't have nearly as many people riding bikes and touring. And so he walked over and asked a few questions. We kind of talked. He said, well, why don't you come on and join us? So we went, and we all sat down at the table. I've got my coffee and a little bowl of clam chowder. And he said, you know, what are your plans? What are you going to be doing? I said, well, I'm going to spend some time around Boston. Uh, he said, well, where are you staying tonight? I said, well, I'll find this probably a campground or rest or something like that. And he said, well, he turned his wife and turned back to me and he said, what if you spend the night with us? It looks like it's going to rain. We'll get you out of the rain. And then he said, you know, what are you going to be doing the next part of the, your trip? I said, well, I'm a history major. I'm a school teacher and I want to explore Boston area and, you know, see all the historical places like Stin Concord, Walden Pond that Thoreau lived at for a while. And then he turned back to his wife and they talked quite a bit longer this time. Finally, he turned back around and he said, here's an idea. We live on the, the west side of Boston. Why don't you spend a couple of days with us? Uh, you can use our house as a, a home base. We'd love to have meals, but you don't have to show up for them. Uh, and that way you can see Boston save a little bit of money. And the next day, he takes off going to work. And he leaves his wife in, the late, in her late 20s alone with me and his son, this long-haired hippie biker. I was so struck by the stupidity of that, that he didn't know me. I, like I said, I was a long-haired hippie biker at that point. But the hospitality he exhibited was striking. I don't know if he was a Christian or not. That subject never came up. But I was amazed at how this guy really got sometimes the risk of, of being a servant, that there are times in our lives, and we do this wisely. I'm not saying be stupid. But we need to realize that following Jesus comes with a risk at times. He said that in this world, you will have trouble, but rejoice, I've overcome the world. And we sacrifice a lot, and I think sometimes we have to sacrifice our safety. The Good Samaritan, uh, it could have been a setup. He made himself vulnerable, but he did it out of love. So I, I think it was a challenge for me, and I hope for all of us to realize we need to, to serve people, and sometimes that will cost, and that's okay. Tim Ryder is with us from his home in Southern California. His book is called God, a Motorcycle, 
and the open road. Tim, when angels ride along, dealing with danger. <laughs> uh, that was on the, the first motorcycle trip I took. It was up to Canada, and there were two of us on the bike, and I had a, a backpack, kind of a duffel bag, behind us up high. I'd, I bought the bike, and I'd ridden for maybe two, three weeks before I left on the trip which means I'm a total newbie. They didn't have motorcycle safety courses then. So we went up to the California coast, uh, up visited an old college roommate in that area. And then from Banff, we're going south on this road toward Radium Hot Springs. And we came into this curve, a big sweeping curve to the right, and said 60 miles per hour. No, excuse me, said 45 and on a bike, 45 means you can usually do 50% more. I was doing probably 65 or 70, but we I just had that turn dialed in. I really did. It was sweet at just the right angle of lane and doing like maybe 70, something like that. And right in the middle of the turn, all of a sudden, the chain slipped off and locked the rear wheel. Mm. I didn't have enough experience to know what to do. By all the laws of physics, we should have been popped to the left with the, the back wheel braking like that. We kind of skidded. Somehow I kept it upright uh, in the moment, skidded to the stop, spent a couple of hours taking the, the, the chain and the wheel apart to fix it. But I realized, as I, I'm sitting on the side of the road working the bike, sweating a little bit, and it, it hit me. I did not have the skill to recover from that turn when when the rear wheel locked. I hadn't ridden enough. We had a very high center of gravity. I was not I wasn't a follower at that point, but it hit me. I had to have some angels here. Uh, at least maybe a couple on each side, maybe more. I've got no idea. But I'm not a guy that over over spiritualizes things. But at that point I've got no no doubt that God sent some angels to protect us, to keep keep us alive, to keep us from getting hurt. And, you know, there's a, a problem that if, why does God intervene at times? I have no idea. But I do know that God loves us. He works for our good. And and we need to cooperate with him and be ready for that. And ironically, there's another lesson on that. You've got to take care of your gear. That that 350 Honda that I had, which was way too small to take up that far of the trip, it had a chain, and you had to tighten the chain every day. And I had forgotten one day to tighten it. I was so into the the joy of riding a bike that apparently I forgot to tighten it. Got too loose. So not only do we need to to realize there are angels involved in life, but also that we need to take care of our gear. We need to take care of our life and watch it. Tom Ryder is with us from his home in Southern California. The book we're talking about is God, a motorcycle, and the open road. And when we come back. Tom, I want you to talk about the glory of silence, a time to pray. You're listening, folks, to the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour right here on the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word, in Orlando. Tom Ryder is with us from Southern California. And Tom, as advertised... The glory of silence, a time to pray. You know, there's a group of us that take a big ride every year, about four to six of us each, each time. And one of them 
one of the guys at Cherry just absolutely loves iPods. He's got two of them, one for sermons, one for praise music. Uh, I've kind of the other end of the spectrum. Don't have any musical or any sound equipment on the bike. And part of the reason is it's a delightful time to spend alone with God. That sometimes in life we get so busy, we get caught up in activity. And, and this is one of the biggest problems in my life, that I'm busy for God, but I don't want to spend the time with Him. Biking is a remedy for that. A couple of years back, uh, there's an issue in my life with the church. Should I? Our church was kind of stuck. What should we do with it? So the first couple of days, I, I'd written down a number of praise songs. I just sang to God. Uh, I could, I, I've got a cruddy voice, Pat. I, for singing, it is pathetic. So on the bike, though, nobody could hear me. So I sang these praise songs as loud as I wanted to. And it put me in a tune that's just just beautifully connected with God and, and kind of flowing with Him. And then I started praying. And there was a, with the church, what, what should we do? Is it time to make a change or what? And I had no idea. And so I just spent the time talking to God and say, God, whatever you want. At the end, I had no answers, except I had that sense that I was with God. And and a closeness with him that far transcended the typical. Came back, and a friend of mine who was involved with a church planning group said, Tim, we're going to be starting a couple of, we're going to be combining a couple of churches in that area. Would you be interested with your church being a part of it? It was That was like the day that I got back. It was a neat message from God. And one of the things that I think it teaches us is that we need to, have time enough to listen to God and get in tune with God. Biking can be that. That Simon and Garfield had a song de- decades back, The Sounds of Silence. I think sometimes we need to, to get in tune with that, to get away, to not to talk, not to listen, but just be with God and listen to Him. And the bike does that in a delightful way. I, that I just made a change on the bike. I had a Honda ST1300 as a sport touring bike. And selling it, I'm getting a Goldwing, and the Goldwing has a sound system. I'm trying to figure out how much do I want to get involved with the sound. It's got an AMFM radio, a CD player, and I almost feel like disconnecting them. I probably won't, but I'm feeling like it. Let's go to this topic, Tim. Good gear gets you where you want to go. Yeah, I kind of, Pat, to a certain extent, I melded that chapter into the one about the angels. So I kind of covered that. Uh, Sorry if I messed up the program on that. Let's go to Friendly Fire, dealing with damage (laughs) from friends. Uh, Back in the early 70s, a couple of us were writing in Southern California, and we heard about a college conference on the 4th of July weekend in Prescott, Arizona. So I think five or six of us wrote... We left at midnight, rode out to Prescott to beat the desert heat. And then the conference ended like at 10 o'clock on a, one morning, which meant we had to fight the desert heat. So we're coming back across the desert. The temp's like 115. And some of the guys took their shirts off to cool, and I, I actually put a, a shirt on to, to beat the sun a little bit. And we pulled into Blythe, and we're hot, we're thirsty, we're tired. And so as we're riding along, I said, guys, shall we stop and something to drink? And they all said, yes. Yeah. So I'm, I'm in the lead, kind of in the right side of the lane. And one of my best buddies, we've ridden an awful lot together. Rich was behind me, staggered. So 
like, I see over on the left, here's this coffee shop. First place we saw it looked good, clean, enough cars to make you trust it. And so I put up my hand and signal, turned on my turn signal, and pulled, kind of did like a 45-degree turn ready to, get, to turn over to the coffee shop. And all of a sudden, bam, Rich didn't see the signs that I made. He hit me almost T-boned. Mm. Luckily, he hit the crash bar I had. My Honda 350 then crow-hopped about five or five to ten feet. Again, by the grace of God, I didn't go down, but my that crash bar was bent close to 40-degree angle. And here's, a, here's Rich. He's a fellow follower of Jesus, one of my best friends, and that's the only accident I've had in the motorcycle in almost 50 years of riding. And it's a bit of a metaphor for how in the Christian life, we'll take some friendly fire. Rich didn't intend to do that. To this day, he doesn't remember it. I think he, he blessedly blanked it out. But there are times that we'll get hurt by fellow Christians. Uh, that's going to happen. We're all people. Uh, I messed up at a job one time, and the boss was not a Christian, but a very wise guy. I'm apologizing to hey, Tim. Welcome to the human race. We will be hurt. It's, it's our response then. Do we adopt a redemptive, restorative mood, or do we get angry and strike back? Most of the the splits in churches occur over little things. I know two churches in one town that split over the color of carpeting in the fellowship hall. So sometimes we need to be a little bit more redemptive and forgive and realize we're all imperfect. We're going to hurt each other, but we can't let it go on. Let's do... Uh... The next topic, it's an interesting one, ride free, loosening restrictions. Explain that, Tom. Okay. Uh, One of the things that that people like about riding bikes is the freedom that comes. Uh, Freedom in a number of venues. First of all, we don't have a steel cage around us. That we're, We're open to God's creation, and we get all of the smells, the aromas, the sights, uh, the bugs in the face, there's that old line before full-face helmets, you can tell a happy motorcyclist by the bugs in his teeth. And we lose some of the restrictions of the road or, or the, that other cars will have. There's a freedom to travel on that big 74 trip I took. There was a, I had no destination except to see America. And I had a, I'd quit the job I'd had before, so I had no end except running out of money. And I would take, this is part of the freedom that we get from riding bikes when we've got an open-ended trip. I would take little roads that just looked promising. If a local said, hey, you ought to try this, I would do it. And there's something about a freedom of destination, a freedom of route that bikes contemplate. We've started a motorcycle ministry in our church where you have a ride about once a month. And so far, I've been leading the first couple. And I love the plan of it. I'll get a projected destination, and then I'll get a projected route, and I'll share it with the guy. Say, guys, what do you think about this? How can we change it? And almost every time, we've made some tweaks to it. There's a freedom to it that we get more on motorcycles than we do in vehicles. I don't know that I can explain it, why it's more free, but it is. I want you to talk to us about grab a goal, your own personal bucket list. Uh, there was a, my bucket list started back in, gosh, 1974 on that big trip. No, actually another one on 73. And I pulled in outside of Beaumont, Texas, 
a little bit before almost midnight. It was hot and humid, bugs all over the place. I'd taken off the trip without having a, a desire ahead, so I didn't have a tent. I had my sleeping bag and a pack for gear and pulled into Beaumont on the east part of Texas. It was hot and sweaty at night, so I, it was too hot to sleep in the sleeping bag. And so I'd pull out of the bag and sleep on top, and all the mosquitoes would attack you. So I finally, about 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock, I said, I can't sleep anyway. I might as well ride. So I packed up, took off, heading for El Paso. And I had some friends I'd talked with that had moved to El Paso, and I was going to stop by and see them. And then as I'm starting to ride, I'm thinking, well, where can I stop the next night? In order, El Paso at that point was like 950 miles, almost 1,000 miles in one day. I'm thinking, that's a little too far. I got halfway in. I thought, there's really no place to start. I got to stop easily. So I thought, well, maybe I'll think about it. Went a little farther and made the commitment. I called them. I said, I'll be in. I'll probably be about 10 o'clock tonight. I was committed to something that I'd never done before, that long of a ride. And there's something we need about challenges. I think especially for men, but to a large extent for many women as well. But we need to push ourselves. I want you to uh, continue to push your book. You've done great. I'm happy we could visit, Tim. And um, you keep at it. Keep writing. Keep telling the story. Thank you, Pat. Uh, Tim Ryder, our guest, author of God, A Motorcycle in the Open Road. We've got a wrap-up right after this on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. Right here on the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. Thanks for joining us, folks, here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. Tracy Mitchell, our guest, in that first segment, uh, talking about her book, Becoming Brave. And then Tim Ryder joined us from Southern California. Had a good chat about God, a motorcycle, and the open road. I have a new book that is coming out right about now. It's called Lead Like Walt, and we look at Walt Disney uh, through the narrow focus of leadership. What made him a great leader? Uh, what did he have? And what, more importantly, what can we learn from him in that area of leadership? HCI is the publisher. The book is coming out now. Go up to Amazon. Wonderful way to order books. Uh, this is the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. We're back next weekend for more. Right here on the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.